Hello and welcome to Progress Report, a podcast produced by the National Center for School Safety, the Stop School Violence Program National Training and Technical Assistance Center, funded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The center is a project of the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Thank you for tuning in to this series on comprehensive school safety planning. We hope listening helps you recognize the importance of planning, understand the different perspectives on school safety, and discover the connections and how various disciplines approach school safety. In our last episode, I spoke to staff at Genesee Intermediate School District, or GISD, in Genesee County, Michigan, about the kinds of restorative practices they used in their schools as part of an NIJ grant project. Today you'll hear from additional staff about getting buy-in for those practices, coordinating with school resource officers, and sustaining programs after the grant period is over. First is Grant Program Manager Mike Rexon, who I talked to about what set the GISD grant apart and how his team got started doing the work. I am the um, Program Manager for the uh, National Institute of Justice grant um, that Genesee ISD uh, currently currently holds. My, my role is to supervise the staff that are placed in our treatment sites and to work closely with the two research teams to make sure that they get the data that, that they need to be able to um, move forward once the interventions are all done. Could you tell me a little bit about um, this particular project and what, what sure. it's all about? <laughs> Sure. This this particular project is um, the the funding of it of of our project comes from like like I said the National Institute of Justice, but uh, the the reason the funding was made available was because of the Sandy Hook shooting, and you know President Obama was in office at the time and and right then and there uh, immediately afterwards, the federal government made a lot of money available for school safety research. One of the one of the considerations from what I'm told the research team looked at was how young do we start these interventions? You know, how do, how do we identify the age group uh, with which we want to try to implement these these interventions into a school building? And they came to the determination that it was, you know, fourth grade was kind of where they wanted to begin that thinking that it might be a bit too much for third graders to handle in terms of the research and, and all of that with the, the questionnaires and, and that kind of stuff that need to take place on a regular basis. It was uh, before the middle school, before most of these students hit the you know seventh, eighth, and, and high school grades where there's an awful lot going on with, with those grades in terms of interventions and things like that. So that, that's where they, they came to the determination that the four, five, six was probably the best target population. Most of the grants that we have uh, in place around the country are looking at one or maybe two interventions, but with ours, it's you know three and four interventions at a time. And uh, that, that's why we have two full research teams on this project. We have uh, one research team from Michigan State University School of Criminal Justice and an entirely different research team from the University of Michigan School of Public Health. And they're both looking at different things. They're both working together um, in, in terms of you know, data collection, data analysis, um, 
interventions and, and we, we meet monthly as a team and, and talk about what is it that we need and how do we get it? How do we, how do we best make this work for everybody, including you know, being very careful with the, the schools, uh, the administration, the teachers, the students, just making sure that we're not asking too much from them. One of the things that we really felt strongly about was, was putting that, that restorative practice and school climate specialist into a building because you can give all the training that you want and then just ask those teachers and those administrators to just go out and do it. But by placing somebody in there and helping um, steer those interventions and assisting with those interventions and um, you know, being a resource and a guide and an encouragement. Um, you know, some of those staff have been in these buildings for almost four years now. Um, they've created some really, really strong relationships with the staff and the students. And um, that's what we're hearing is the big difference when you've got that kind of support. What I've been hearing is just how much of a community the staff worked to build in order to also build a community with students and faculty. Um, just, and it, it sounds like a lot of the work being done, especially with regard to some of the restorative practices, that's just a necessary component. Like, it, and, and maybe sometimes a, an effect of those practices is building that sense of community in the school. That's a, that's a big deal, that, that community. And you know, when, when you really look at the heart and soul of what, what this grant is trying to do is it's trying to go into those individual classrooms and change the feeling, change the culture, change the climate and the environment so that those students are able to feel like um, when something happens that they've got a, a real appropriate way to deal with it. Uh, the process allows them not only to um, take responsibility for their actions sometimes, but also it, it, uh, it really necessitates that they be a part of making it right, which is different. Uh, it's, it's counter to, to typically how student discipline has worked over the years. It's, you know, usually it's a student kind of messes up and there's a prescribed punishment they receive that punishment, they, they come back to the classroom when you kind of hope for the best. With, with the process that we put in place in those classrooms, they, they really had to acknowledge what they did and who they hurt, and then try to help figure out how to make it right. So they have to internalize uh, a lot of what they did as opposed to just accepting the punishment. We'll hear more from Mike Rexon at the end of this episode. Now on to Dan Balderman, climate specialist at GISD. I spoke to him about cultivating buy-in with teachers as restorative practices were introduced in his school. I'm Dan Balderman, the um, school climate and restorative practice specialist at Lakeville Middle School. Uh, I've been doing this since 2017. It's almost four years now. I worked with high school students for most of my career, uh, actually in ministry. And at one point I started doing a whole lot of mentoring and realized counseling was actually where I wanted to go, got a counseling degree. When I graduated, started looking for a job. And this opportunity 
just kind of came together. It's actually the school where my kids attend. Did you find yourself having to cultivate buy-in uh, when this was new or like, how did, how did that process in the beginning go? Like, what, what did you face uh, challenges <laughs> and, and could you speak to those? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think like anything, there's, there's certain people who struggle with it because they're all at different places. They're all on different levels of, of burnout and struggle from different projects and different, you know, different things they've faced. I, I think of probably a couple that had some really difficult time buying into the project were a couple of the last people to get trained. And I think their problem with buy-in was they didn't understand what was going on. And they heard the buzzword, but didn't have any, like, they didn't know what that meant. It's one of those things I say, it, it kind of sounds like some sort of magic spell or something like you say these words and people are like oh that means something and I need to be trained on that it's like no no like we're just talking in a circle man like there's some you know some details to that but it's really not as complicated as you think they went and got trained and um, man they're two of the strongest buy-ins that we have now uh, you know soon after they got back there was one student who came to one of those teachers and admitted to some real uh, serious abuse in their life. And so suddenly they're in my office with a police officer and parents and, and, and the students said, no, 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 please, can I have my teacher stay here with me? That comes from relationship development that happened because this teacher was just that much more tuned in. She was already a great teacher, but she was that much more tuned in to these things because of the training. And, you know, we, I see that all over the place. If I can say, I think that's probably one of the biggest struggles I see from teachers too, is when can I do that? I tune these kids into their emotions and I try to be available, but now I've got 30 of them and I've got one that wants to talk to me and they're balling in the corner. What do I do? You know, and I think that's a real important element for our schools to consider. We have some things things built in. We have things like rooms to send kids to when they're misbehaving. And it would be valuable for us to reconsider, might that person rather than just need to be trained as a disciplinarian, maybe they need to be trained in some social emotional elements where they can use these restorative practice tools. Because really all it requires is someone who cares and has the the time and not a class load of students to be available and connect them to the proper resources. So is there anything else you'd like to share? I guess I would say, you know, there was a little bit before COVID, you know, I know that restorative practices was sort of the, it was the trend. I think a teacher had written a article on how restorative practices was just going to burn them out because it was so much with their class load. And I, I read that and really had a lot of compassion for them because this is what I do. Like my whole day is given to that. I feel like our school has an incredible opportunity that there's someone in, in my position where as teachers have students in struggle, they can send them down the hall to me. I think it's incredible that I have a, a job where you know, I have kids who just come into my room, you know, clenched fists and 
ready to fight and they know the place to go in my room to calm down. I don't have to talk to them at all at first and I wait for them to cool down. I get to do all of that and they have this safe place that they know is a safe place like that. And I think I think that rather than throw out restorative practices, we need to look at the reality of the usefulness of this sort of role. I know it's unusual and I know it's a funding thing, but could our schools look at some of the other positions that are being done and could they be tweaked in such a way that we could create additional supports for our students that would serve them in a restorative way to help them have a safe place where they get to be heard, where they can understand better what they are trying to accomplish and what their methodology has caused harm and how they can make it right with each other. I just think, man, that is a far more uh, useful position and use of our time than sending a kid off to you know, in-school suspension for the day or a timeout for two hours to wait for the principal or what, like those conversations can happen. And it doesn't take, it doesn't take somebody with a master's degree to make those conversations happen. I just think that can change an entire school's culture. If we can just look at how to shift some of those things and support our kids in that way. Next is Angela Hairston another climate specialist at GISD. She also discussed how the teachers she worked with bought into the restorative practices that were brought to her school. So currently I am the climate specialist here at Woodland Park Academy in Flint, Michigan. And I work with fourth, fifth and sixth graders uh, with restorative practices where I go into the classroom and conduct circles and help the teachers build community I've also had the opportunity to work with third grade, ninth grade, seventh grade with restorative practices. How did you end up in this role or this, this career? Like what, what brought you uh, to this position? I have always enjoyed working with students. I've always felt like there was something inside of me that I needed to give to them. This, when I saw the uh, job description for this position, I'm like, this is exactly what I've been looking for. And as the climate specialist here, I get to encourage, uplift, redirect, uh, empower so many students here. And it's just amazing that, you know, that's what they need to hear. Did you experience any pushback on, uh, especially from teachers, uh, about implementing? some of these new practices in the classroom? Because I know it takes time to set up a circle um, and actually do it. Yeah, it does. Um, and that was the initial concern um, from one of the teachers to, you know, I've already got 10 things to do and now you add another one to my list. And so it is an investment of time and your energy and, um, and the buy-in doesn't always come right away. Um, sometimes, I could, I would even venture to say it took a whole year before one of the teachers really grasped the concept. And, you know, we have to do a lot of modeling with circles. We have to come up with our circle norms. In doing so, once you invest that time, 
you don't have to go back. So once you set your ground rules and your time frame, and have your questions in play and know who, who's a distraction doing a circle, once you know those things, you can have a sidebar conversation with that person and say, hey, I'm having circles. I'm depending on you, you know, to join in, you know. So it's worth the investment. Like I've caught her doing circles without me even being there. Um, and it's and it's not just um, circle questions, but sometimes you can actually do some um, icebreaker activities too. It's just a wonderful time to build community. The buy-in does take a while, um, but for the most part, those who are in the program appreciate it. And I've had the opportunity to do circles with eighth graders um, because they see it's an opportunity to problem solve. When you're in a, in a classroom and you're uh, dealing with situations, it's the best thing to do is to sit down and understand what's going on from the students in the classroom in order to be able to build that community. Because we as teachers, we don't know everything. And it's important that we get input from others so that it is a community that is not one-sided what the teacher says, but it's what the students say too. It's very, very important. And when you empower them and when you involve them, um, you get productive learning, um, you get cooperation, you get less uh, negative feedback, and you build that trust, which is important. In addition to teachers, the climate specialists at GISD also worked alongside school resource officers, or SROs. Dr. Tamara Smeltzer, another climate specialist, spoke to me about her experience with her school's SRO. I have 25 years in education, but after I earned my PhD, I wanted um, to, to do something different. And so currently in this role, I go into classrooms and we circle up, but I try to provide a, um, a prompt to provide something different, something new to get kids um, engaged. It's always fun to start with something fun, low risk, um, but I have been trying to align my prompts with uh, the Michigan Department of Education social emotional learning competencies. And so I pose prompts, questions, sometimes they're questions, sometimes it's a scenario. Today, I went into a fourth grade room and I asked the kids, so you have a friend and they want you to do something you know you shouldn't or um, is just a bad decision and how do you feel? That emotional piece. I didn't ask them what they were going to do. I just asked them how they feel and to identify their feelings. But that's the social emotional piece, just describing how I feel. And so for me, um, helping children identify how they feel has been critical. Um, the other thing, the other reason that we dig into that is that academic background is then we encourage language development. And that language development can show in their writing. And so that also becomes um, not just how I express myself, but also how I, how I write or how I understand how a character might feel in a book or something. I've been, I try to be cognizant of that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit more about your relationship with some of the other members of your team. I know you mentioned um, the school resource officer was a lifesaver 
Yes, the school resource deputy, um, Deputy Stephen Messer. He was my lifesaver. So I get to the building and um, he was part of the interview team when I got interviewed. And he gets me here. And the first thing he does is he takes me to every single classroom and he introduces me to the children and to the teachers, which was fantastic, right? And he kind of gives me every school has its own climate. Every school has its own vibe. And he was very quick to share with me. This is, this is how it is. This is what goes on. Let me tell you about this teacher, this teacher, here's a couple kids whose names you're going to know. And this is what I've done. This is what we've done in the past. It was fantastic to have that right off the bat. Okay. Because when you go in and you don't know anybody, then you you're figuring those things out. And I've done 25 years. I've done school a long time, but it was nice to have that and not have to take the time to figure those things out. So yes, he was a lifesaver. The first couple of times I did circles, I've said this to um, Mr. Rexon. I've said this to my principal. I am transitioning from an academic mindset to this social, emotional, restorative justice mindset. And it takes time when you talk to children and you listen Okay, if you hear them, if you hear what they're saying, if you hear, I always say you got to hear with your heart because you've got to get beyond words sometimes. So I, this was a very much a transition for me to slow myself down, again, cognizant of the academic piece, but to slow down and listen and then not even respond until after they're done talking, but then to ask inquiring questions. Just, you know, just keep asking questions till you can dig a little deeper into how they're really feeling. Deputy Messer was very perceptive. He already knew the kids. He knew the community. The parents knew him. He had no problem saying, here's my card. If there's something going on after school and you need something, call me. So he built a relationship. That was critical when COVID hit. Because he was, because he could go to a home and he already has a relationship with families, but he's going as a sheriff, as the sheriff's department, as a deputy of the sheriff's department, and he's representing the school first, but he's also there because it's, it's a welfare check. Why aren't the kids in school? Where are they? And so he already had that relationship because sometimes when the cops show up, you immediately go, what, wait, what, what, right? And, but he already has a relationship with families. Yeah, he was my partner. Yeah, absolutely. My partner. If there was a circle, he was in the circle. Um, sometimes he would throw out a prompt. He, anytime we were doing restorative practices using that process, he did that with me. Stuff goes wrong on the playground. Okay. <laughs> That's where stuff goes awry. And, um, and so after they ate, you bring them in, you're like, let's have this conversation because we don't want to take this back to class. The other thing you remember now is when a child is upset or angry or frustrated or sad, or then they're not learning. And so we've got to get that out. We've got to take care of that and get that out of their head so that they can go back into the classroom and focus on the academic piece of this. Dr. Smeltzer also shared her thoughts on sustaining restorative practices in her school after the district's grant funded project ends. They're trying to figure out, I'm gone next year. You know, our grant is up, but we're trying to figure out um, the behavior specialists and I are working together and we've worked together since I got here, but making sure she has all of the, the questions that I asked and the lessons that I've done. I want to make sure I give all of that to her because they're talking about potentially doing social emotional learning, 
circles, restorative practices as an elective here next year for our specials. They call them specials in elementary school, but as a special um, for 30 minutes, you know, twice a week. That is the principal seeing the difference. That is the teachers feeling the difference in this practice that. um, And so I want to make sure that she has everything she needs so that that can happen next year in the school. It's powerful. I, I, I didn't realize it again. I, 25 years, I did middle school math. Um, I, I, I ran a very, it was, a, there was no nonsense in my room. Um, but I didn't have this tool, this restorative piece, which would have been nice. You're just providing a framework to help children learn how to work through. I'm providing a framework that you hope they carry with them beyond school, but maybe um, when they're working with in the community or as they get older and they have a job. I mean, you can't go through life and not have conflict, okay? You, right. you just can't. And so then how do we wanna solve it is always um, what matters. And when you mess up, you just apologize. It shouldn't be a big deal, okay? You, you made a mistake, you messed up, you hurt someone's feelings, apologize for that. Know what, what did you do? And, and make sure that you, the person that you've harmed um, knows that you're sorry for that. Ultimately, the social emotional learning using circles and restorative practices continues to transform the climate in the building. Then nobody's got any problems, right? (laughs) Program manager Mike Rexon also discussed the district's next steps with regard to sustainability and the NIJ grant project. So I know um, a lot of times sustainability is a, a, a part of these projects and just thinking about, you know, when the grant period is over, what's next? So I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to that at all. You know, what, what are your thoughts about that? Or, you know, how, how um, what's next? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a, that's a really good question. You know, and I've been, I attend our three person leadership team meetings in each of our buildings. So I'm uh, kind of uh, insert some different topics for conversation. And uh, last month, that was really one of the one of the topics was so so what's next? You know, we we can all see that this thing is kind of winding down, and um, you know, for some buildings it's been four years, and others it's been three years, and you've got an awful lot of interventions that have taken place. And how do you how do you keep that going? What are your plans? And you know, some some of our buildings are actually going to hire our staff. To, to keep it going. Others have identified, you know, processes within their building that will keep the concepts going, but not necessarily the staffing piece of it. We are meeting uh, today, actually, this, uh, this afternoon with the research teams. And I know that sustainability is, is on the agenda as well. We're just looking at that. You know, the goal of this project, hopefully, is, you know, that the data bears out that, uh, that these are really solid interventions and that they're cost effective. And when it's all said and done, you would certainly hope that we would be able to use this research to ask for, you know, funding on a larger scale. I mean, that's, that's the, the end goal, you know, is to try to take something like this and, and offer it to our districts across the county. Our guest in this episode talked about what set the GISD grant project apart, how staff bought into the project, what it was like to coordinate with school resource officers, and how staff plan to sustain the work moving forward. 
If you'd like to learn more that may help in your context, you can check out the following freely available resources from the National Center for School Safety. The on-demand training Engaging Stakeholders in School Safety Planning, which describes how to find partners that best suit your school safety program goals and determine when in the planning process to connect with them. The on-demand training Sustaining School Safety Programs, which discusses what sustainability plans are, why they are important to include in grant planning, and how to write them. Thank you for tuning into this episode. For more information about the National Center for School Safety, visit our website, nc2s.org. You can also check us out on Twitter and Facebook. This episode of Progress Report was produced by the National Center for School Safety at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Additional resources and information can be found in the show notes, and music is thanks to Mackay Beats. This project was supported by Cooperative Agreement Number 2019-YS-BX-K001, awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Victims of Crime, and the Office of Sex Offender Sentencing, Monitoring, Apprehending, Registering, and Tracking. Points of view or opinions in this document are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice.